0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's, uh, I was going to say good morning, but it's now actually afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. We now have Zachary, Zachary Peatlinger, who's going to tell us about the joy of the British martyrs. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a real joy to be with you here at Chalk Valley History Festival. It's always a major highlight of the year for me. And thank you guys for coming, because I know that this is a bit of a random topic, a bit of a weird topic how can people go to their deaths with a sense of joy a sense of expectation or hope that's what we're going to be talking about today we're going to be looking at the stories of anne askew margaret chain the oxford martyrs and the stratford martyrs to try and investigate that so uh to set the scene we really need to understand the world we're stepping into and the way we're going to do that is through the story of margaret chain If any of you know anything about the the history of the English Reformation or about Margaret Chain herself, you might think that she's a bit of a weird choice to start off this talk with. She wasn't a martyr. She wasn't killed for her religious beliefs per se, but instead for treason, for inciting rebellion. So why start to talk about the joy of the British martyrs with her? Well, because she serves as a fantastic example to help us understand the wider context. She was a woman that was wrapped up in a world of religious upheaval, political turmoil, and ideological conflict. And to understand how we got there, we have to step back a little bit to 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. With each blow of the hammer, impact reverberated through history. He was one of the sparks of a reformation that would shake the foundations of the Christian religion and start to shape society and culture across the globe. And when it reached the shores of England, presented Henry VIII with the perfect opportunity to get exactly what he wanted. All of us know the story of Catherine of Aragon. He wanted to get rid of her and the way to do that was to break with the church in Rome. The Reformation presented him the opportunity to do that. Suddenly he had a chance to turn away from the Pope, institute his very own Church of England and have his way. Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cranmer were two men that were tasked with starting to shift the balance of power in the country because the church had always been one of the powerhouses of not only the religious life but the political and cultural life in the country. They had their fingers in basically everything. Areas of law such as family law were controlled by the church and for years kings had been trying to wrestle power back from the church and once more this presented Henry with the opportunity to do that. So Cromwell and Cranmer started what we now know as the dissolution of the monasteries and as this went along it wasn't really met with too much widespread opposition. Everyone just kind of accepted the abolition of Um, The church's power, the Pope's power in ecclesiastical affairs. And everyone just let it happen. That's all right. The king can be in charge. Sure. That's not that big of an issue. But then they started to come for the pilgrimages and the saints days. And that's when everyone started to have an issue. Everyone loves a party. And when you can have them a billion times a year because there's so many saints, you start taking those away, people have an issue. And so riots started breaking out. Revolts started breaking out. Those that were sent to dissolve the monasteries, the suppression commissioners, started to be attacked. The largest of these uprisings was the Pilgrimage of Grace, which rose to have 40,000 people involved. And this is also the crux of Margaret Chain's story. She and her husband, ended up getting involved with the pilgrimage of grace and it ultimately led to her downfall because the pilgrimage of grace failed they were marching towards london they wanted to bring about some sort of religious political economic change they had written out a whole thesis a whole proposal to the king they met with the duke of norfolk and he said yes i'll definitely get this in front of the king despite the fact that he didn't have any authorization to actually do that. He also promised complete um, uh, relinquishment of any punishment to any of these rebels, despite the fact that he was not authorized to do that. And eventually, he he made all these promises, and the Pilgrimage of Grace, led by Robert Ask, uh, from up north, a big Catholic leader, they said, okay, fine, we believe you, we believe you. Let's disperse, we'll all go home, we'll stop with this, and uh, we'll let it rest for a bit, because we believe you. The Duke of Norfolk obviously couldn't actually give them anything they wanted. So the pilgrimage of grace failed, the leaders were arrested, tortured, and most of them were executed. This included Margaret Chain. She was born the illegitimate daughter of Edward Stafford, the third Duke of Buckingham, married off to William Chain before he sold her to John Bulmer of Winton to be his mistress. Now, not only does she serve as a good illustration for the wider political and religious context, but also the rather oppressive structures around gender and marriage at the time. Wife sale was a thing that could actually happen. And so they sold her off to uh, John Bulmer. It seems to have worked out okay for her though. They they ended up getting married after um, both their spouses reportedly died and they had a few kids. But because it all started with a wife sale, her character was always under scrutiny and the legality of their marriage was always Um, under reproach and that was something that would come up later when she was uh, arrested and then eventually executed. Sharon L Jensen who's a historian who's studied this area um, I was going to say religiously but that might be too much of a pun when Margaret Chain was executed no one really understands why because she didn't really do anything really she wasn't an outspoken Member of the Pilgrimage of Grace, but Sharon Jensen writes this Margaret Chain's sexual power was suspect. Women like her could lure their husbands into danger. Men needed to submit to their princes, and they also needed to control their wives, their mothers, their daughters, their female servants. Margaret Chain had violated the contemporary notion that wives should be chaste, silent, and obedient. And her death could certainly have been intended as a warning about the proper behavior of women. Her execution was an example to everyone that women should not get involved in these things, and if they did, the punishment would be great. And so this serves as the perfect background, the perfect context, and a great contrast to our first martyr, Anne Askew. Sharp-tongued, quick-witted, a woman who stood firm on her beliefs in the face of wider society and the king's church. She was a woman that was tortured to such a degree that she could not even hold herself upright on the stake that they used to burn her. A woman who said in the face of torment, torture and eventually death, I would rather die than break my faith. She was an ardent reformer and a unique figure in the history of women's education and even English literature. We'll find out why in a bit. From young, she was known as incredibly smart, sharp-witted and outspoken. Her marriage eventually ended and dissolved because she loved to debate the reforms of Martin Luther. Her husband was a devout Catholic and he didn't like this at all. They had a few kids and they tried to salvage their fracturing relationship, but it got to such a fever pitch that her husband turned her out of the house. Doesn't really seem to have bothered her too much because then she set off to London, seizing the opportunity to evangelize and preach to people as she went. She handed out illegal Protestant documents and she preached in such a way that became known as plain speaking, plain preaching this was an issue many of the catholic bishops believed that plain speaking plain preaching was a tool of the devil to undermine the power of the church because there's nothing worse than normal people actually being able to understand what the bible says not only this but anne was very good at this preaching thing her ability to answer questions in a way that was clear and concise and understandable rivaled that of the inquisitors themselves. She was like a fire that could not be controlled or contained, and whenever anyone tried to, she would burn their hands. In February 1546, Stephen Gardner, a Catholic bishop and a man that would become known for persecuting Protestants, wrote up a list of 23 men and women that he viewed as radical Protestants that he wanted to destroy. He got approval from Henry VIII, and one of those people was Anne Askew. He started with what he called a charm offensive, wanting to be Anne Askew's friend, say, I'm just really worried about your salvation. Please stop this reform thing. Stop preaching. Just come back to church. It'll be okay. She refused and became an outspoken critic of transubstantiation, which was the Catholic doctrine that The literal, physical body and blood of Jesus is it present in the bread and the wine at the Eucharist. She was arrested for this and sent to the tower, condemned to be interrogated by means of torture, despite it actually being illegal to torture a woman at the time. Uh, She was subjected to the rack. She was bound by her hands and her feet. Her limbs pulled further and further from their sockets. In her own words, she said, "Then they did put me on the rack. The Lord Chancellor and Master Rich took pains to rack me with their own hands till I was nearly dead. I fainted and then they recovered me again. It was non-stop torture for Anne Askew." And in the brief moments, the brief hours between her torture, she recorded the questions she was asked and the answers that she gave. This is unheard of, right? And these have survived to today. We're able to read the very words of a woman that was being tortured in the Tower of London for her religious beliefs. This is entirely unique in the history of the English Reformation, and also serves as a profound example of women's education in the history of England. It really is astonishing to read it because she's very good at answering questions. And so it eventually came to the point where she was to be executed. She refused to recant twice and was tortured to such an extent that they had to carry her to the stake on a chair. The stake itself had a little seat on it so that she could sit and not have to hold herself up. She was bound by chains around the stake and then time came for her to be burned. But as was the common practice, uh, a man stood up to give a sermon before the, the heretics were burned. And Anne Askew couldn't even be quieted then. This man stood up and started giving the sermon and, and she would call out and say, no, you haven't, you haven't got that right. That's wrong. And just as the fire is getting lit underneath her, she just goes, he misseth. He speaketh without the book. Even in the final moments of her life, this defiance, this audacious faith powered through. Her attitude is almost as if she's saying, if you're going to condemn me by the scriptures, at least open the book. And in one very small, almost backhanded, brutal act of decency as she was being executed, they tied a little bag of gunpowder around her neck so that at least it would be a little quicker it wasn't any less brutal it was Anne's staunch confidence and reliance on scripture that is a theme that we can trace throughout the other stories of the martyrs too about nine years after Anne's execution the death of Henry VIII and his heir Edward VI Mary I was on the throne. And we find our next group of martyrs, those from Oxford. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Cranmer. Hugh Latimer was an academic through and through. He entered education at four years old and by the time he was 14 he was at Cambridge University. He became a scrupulous Catholic priest, an ardent opponent of Martin Luther, and in his own words he said, I was as obstinate a papist as any was in England. His conversion to the reformational doctrines was influenced in large part by an infamous, infamous and well-known preacher, Thomas Bilney, who was also martyred, and he would have a profound effect on all three of these Oxford martyrs. Nicholas Ridley uh, was another Cambridge alumni, Um, And he was brought to reformational thinking by the powerful Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. He was so sold out for these beliefs and his opposition to the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which we mentioned before, and um, the the idea of purgatory. That it was actually him who converted Thomas Cranmer to the reformational perspective as well. Cranmer also went to uh, Cambridge where it took him eight years to complete his BA, which was a surprisingly long time. And he said himself that he had problems retaining information and his family was also hit by loads of financial difficulties. So I think he's justified. These three men came together regularly as members of a group that would meet at the White Horse Inn to discuss the reformational doctrines, religious reforms and theology These also included William Tyndale, the legendary Bible translator and reformer, Nicholas Shaxton, uh, one of Anne Boleyn's personal chaplains, and Matthew Parker, a later Archbishop of Canterbury uh, and one of the founding fathers of Anglican thought. These meetings would be the fire in which these reformers were forged. The spark that set them alight themselves the martyrdom of Thomas Bilney. All three of these men listened to Bilney's sermons and were fascinated by his attacks on the insolence, pomp and pride of the clergy. Bilney preached like this until he was arrested by Cardinal Wolsey, told to recant and do penance for his beliefs, which rather surprisingly, he agreed to do. He recanted everything that he preached. But almost immediately after his recantation, he was so racked by guilt that he headed up to Cambridge to meet with Hugh Latimer, who heard his confession and inspired him to go back to preaching. He had recanted and now he was back. He knew exactly what that meant. He was going to be arrested. And that he was. Um, he was arrested and he was executed. Um, Yeah, Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer were all deeply affected uh, by his death and began their careers as reformers. Latimer preached against purgatory, transubstantiation and indulgences and he became the Bishop of Worcester under Henry VIII and actually met with Anne Askew while she was being tortured and then eventually executed ridley preached widely uh, but was more reserved in his political oppositions to certain doctrines like purgatory he became the bishop of london under edward vi henry's heir cranmer we all know cranmer he became a prominent member of henry the eighth's court helping orchestrate the divorce from catherine of aragon and henry's marriage to anne boleyn and he was also one of the founding people of the dissolution of the monasteries and the separation um, from the powers of the, the Roman church. He also brought about the dissemination of the Bible in English based on Tyndale's translation. Their reformational endeavors weren't widely opposed until the reign of Mary the because she was an avid Catholic and wanted to see England reverted back to the Catholic views. She had Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer arrested and sent to the Bicardo prison in Oxford. Latimer and Ridley were to be executed first. They were led out to the stake in the centre of Oxford. And as they mounted the pyre, Latimer called out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. As last words go, those are pretty good. This absolute assurance in the sovereignty and providence of God never wavered in Latimer as he died quickly. Ridley took longer to die, the flames engulfing his lower regions before ever reaching his upper. But even in his torment, Ridley cried out to God saying, Let The fire come, I cannot burn. These two men were so utterly sure of the truth and stability of the Bible, so convinced of God's faithfulness and sovereignty that even in death they stood firm. Cranmer's route to execution was a little bit more long-winded. He watched his friends Latimer and Ridley burn and apparently broke down in tears. He wrote to Mary the First, begging her to reassert her supremacy over the Church of England and not submit to the Pope. She refused and had Cranmer locked away with a Catholic guard. He was in prison for so long that it got to the point where this Catholic guard was his only friend and his only source of moral support. And because of this, because he wanted to make his new friend happy, he started to seed ground in the religious sphere to the point where he agreed to recant. He signed the papers, he recanted his beliefs, but it wasn't enough. Mary still sent him to be burned. And as he went towards the pyre, he was set up on a platform to announce his agreement with the Catholic doctrines, to announce the fact that he had recanted. But instead, he recanted his recantation. (laughs) He said that he no longer believed these Catholic things and was back to being a good Protestant. And he spoke viciously against Christ's enemy, the Antichrist and all his false doctrine. The officials dragged him from the platform and led him to the pyre. John Fox records this um, really vividly for us as the fire approached him. Kranmer put his right hand into the flames, keeping it there until everyone could see it burned before his body was touched. Kranmer was heard to cry, This unworthy right hand. The hand that had signed the recantation would be the first part of his body to burn. All three of these men were killed because they stood firm on the scriptures, and all three went to their death, filled with an assurance, a hope, an expectation, and even perhaps a joy that God's will would be done and their martyrdom would not be in vain. In the same year that the Oxford martyrs were killed, 93 miles away in Stratford, 13 men and women were executed because they refused to recant. There isn't too much information as how they got to that point. Um, but what makes this event so stand out is the fact that they were all killed at the same time. These 11 men were tied to three stakes. The two women, one of whom was heavily pregnant at the time, was left to wander around, unbound in the middle of the pyre. They were all killed. And it, this was one of the events that really did a lot to gain Mary, her moniker, bloody. What's fascinating for this topic, this joy of the British martyrs when it comes to the Stratford martyrs, is the fact that all of them agreed with whatever charge was brought against them. The the inquisitors would read out their count of heresy, and these people would just nod agree and go, yeah, yeah, basically, that's what I believe, yeah, 100%. And that's what led to their deaths. There was, again, this theme of audacious faith that in the face of persecution, they could still just go, yeah, that's what I believe, of course. So with these stories, these people, these incredible people, can we pull out a few themes to help us understand what it was that allowed them or motivated them or inspired them to go to their deaths with a sense of joy, a sense of hope or expectation. Well, in these stories, I think we see three main themes. Firstly, their belief in the centrality and strength of scripture. Secondly, their assurances on the sovereign plan of God. And thirdly, their hope of heaven. Firstly, their belief in the centrality and strength of scripture. Probably the most obvious recurring theme in in all these stories is that they absolutely, truly believed that the Bible was the word of God, was absolutely true, was the absolute authority on what they should base everything in their lives on, and it couldn't be changed by tradition or by the church. This is the core theme of Anne Askew's story. She refused to waver on what the Bible said, the truth of it, and how that affected everything she did. If the Bible was true, it affected everything. If it was reliable, it changed the very foundation of faith and doctrine. She couldn't compromise because the Bible, in her understanding, didn't compromise either secondly their assurance in the sovereign plan of god this was the core element of the story of the oxford martyrs best illustrated in latimer's final encouragement be of good comfort master ridley and play the man we shall this day light such a candle by god's grace in england as i trust shall never be put out so firmly did latimer believe that god was in control That somehow in the midst of this suffering, somehow in his death, God had a greater plan and purpose to what was going on. This was the foundation that he could stand on as the fire was starting to lap around his feet. They could die knowing that the words of God to the old prophet were true. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts this was what they believed and they believed it to such a degree they were willing to die for it finally their hope of heaven no martyr goes to their deaths without without believing that something happens after they die neither did latimer or ridley as the flames clawed their way over them they both cried out O Father of Heaven, receive my soul. And Anne Askew, while in Newgate Prison, uh, wrote this as part of her confession Written by me, Anne Askew, that neither wish death nor yet fear his might, and as merry as one that is bound towards heaven. The hope of heaven throughout Christian history has been a driving force knowing that whatever suffering takes place down here, it will all be rectified and restored up there. That even if they were to suffer for a little time down here, the loving arms of God would be open to them in heaven. It is this tension that Christian theology exists, that somehow to die is gain. And what about joy? I mean, that's the title of this talk. What about joy? Well, from these three greater themes, I think we can find their source of joy. Ridley, as the flames were lit beneath him, said, Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most hearty thanks for that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I really admire the man, but I'm not sure that I would be saying that. If I'm burning, going, Lord, I'm so thankful for what's happening right now. I give you my hearty thanks. That always blows my mind. And Askew wrote in a prayer, Yet sweet Lord, let me not set by them that are against me, for in thee is my whole delight. There was a sense of joy that bubbled up in these people that somehow... Their belief in God, the the person of God, the personality, the character of God. Somehow that was enough to warrant them having this sense of joy as they died. They could be joyful because they had absolute faith in the sovereignty of God. Assurance of the veracity of scripture and the distinct hope. Of heaven. Thank you very much. Look at that. Bang on time, 12:30 as well. Look at that. That is amazing.